grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Amen. In 1968, a couple of rock and roll idols by the names of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards penned a top 10 hit entitled Sympathy for the Devil. Some of you know that song, just admit it, I'm sure. Now, while I will never go so far as to ask you to harbor any kind of sympathy whatsoever for that age-old horned enemy of humankind, the devil, who was soundly and roundly defeated by Christ's cross on Good Friday, by the way, nevertheless, I am going to ask you to try and muster up a little bit of sympathy for the doubter. And the doubter in mind, of course, is none other than doubting Thomas. But as we go along through our text this morning, hopefully it will become clear that we're not just talking about so-called doubting Thomas, for in Thomas we see a little bit of ourselves, if we are perfectly candid about our own bouts of doubt. We must be willing to admit that our own faith can sometimes come up a bit short of the goal line, so to speak, even when it concerns such significant things as the Lord's miraculous resurrection from the dead. The goal here, however, is that through this honest confession of doubt, we might also come to an honest confession of faith, just as Thomas himself in our gospel lesson does, with a rather sterling confession, I might add, before the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God, he declares. Doubting Thomas becomes confessing Thomas in the instant he encounters the risen Christ. For Thomas, seeing was believing. For us, well, it's not quite that simple, is it? Yet even as I am asking you to exercise a little sympathy for Thomas, it's really our risen Lord Jesus himself who first shows a good deal of sympathy and patience with Thomas, thank God, despite his slowness to believe. Just that fact alone right there ought to bring us a good deal of comfort in and of itself. I mean, the resurrected Jesus could have appeared, now the second time behind locked doors, with a heavy rebuke prepared and aimed squarely at Thomas for his refusal to believe. But Jesus doesn't go there, does he? Rather, Jesus surprisingly accommodates Thomas' skepticism. Skepticism. Verse 26, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus, right there, offers everything Thomas had previously demanded. Now, while that might not always be the case with every skeptic, Thomas was, after all, a chosen apostle, an eyewitness of all these things. Nevertheless, Jesus invites inquiry. He welcomes investigation and he encourages inspection of the evidence concerning his identity as both Lord and God. Well-meaning Christians too often do Christianity a disservice 
when they attempt to shelter it off from normal historical investigation and insist rather that it's merely blind faith that makes one a truly pious believer by failing to adduce the ample evidence that exists to buttress the truth claims of Christianity, Christians also do a disservice to their skeptical neighbors who very well may have some legitimate questions that need clearing up before they can honestly take that leap of faith themselves. So then the idea of a leap of faith and the existence of demonstrable evidence for Christianity's truth claims, they're not actually mutually exclusive. Let me illustrate. If I were hiking atop a rocky ledge and peering down into a refreshing pool of crystal clear water below, I may very well wish to toss a good-sized rock into that pool first in, in order to ensure that the depth of the water was sufficient to break my fall before jumping into it myself and potentially crashing into the rocky bottom of this pool. Nothing wrong with looking before leaping. Now, in the final analysis, it is a leap of faith, to be sure, to trust and obey the Lord, but it's a leap grounded in the solid evidence that he is most trustworthy. It's a faith that's founded on fact. This seems to be what Jesus is more than willing to allow his followers as seen previously in John's Gospel. Chapter 14, to be precise, there Jesus is also addressing Thomas along with the other disciples when he tells them, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. John 14, 11. And is not this also what Nicodemus confesses in John chapter 3 when he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, that's a pretty good observation on Nicodemus' part, who is not far from the kingdom of God at that point. Later, we'll see Nicodemus helping to take Jesus' body down off the cross. Finally, we find in John chapter 11, Jesus' miraculous signs reaching a zenith. There... Jesus deliberately delays his coming to the aid of his dying friend, Lazarus, just so that his followers can behold him performing the astounding miracle of raising the dead. Moments before commanding Lazarus to come out of the tomb, Jesus had prayed, Father, I thank you, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing there that they may believe that you sent me. John eleven forty two, That they may believe. John uses that same phrasing after Jesus himself rises from the dead in our gospel lesson here in chapter 20. He writes, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, did you catch that important detail there by John? 
as he begins to draw his gospel to a close here in chapter 20, John points out that these things are written so that you may believe. They are holy writ. As the last living apostle, John completes the transition from the spoken word, the so-called viva voce, or living voice, from the mouths of the original apostles, to now the written word. The four gospels being the apostles' legacy to the church, as were their epistles as well. Through the written word now, we obtain the very blessing Christ our Lord spoke about to Thomas in the upper room. Jesus said to him, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the blessing you and I claim today. Our Lord there is talking about us and about every Christian believer from the second century on down to the present day. Literally billions of Christians down through history, many of whom, at least in the early days of Christianity, died for their faith. And many today still die in those parts of the world that are hostile toward Christianity. It's just what Jesus predicted, though. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, from John 15. We preach a message of love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ that is often met, in not all, but many places, with persecution and death. Ironically, the more Christians died for their faith in those early years, the faster Christianity spread throughout the world, leading to what the second century church father Tertullian famously observed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But it really takes off with the written word. In our reading from the book of Revelation today, the ascended Lord Jesus there instructs John in his vision to write. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. St. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the message of Christ. So this isn't just any word heard and read by those who have not seen the resurrected Christ. It's not just any message, but it's the life-giving gospel, that message of Christ. In that same letter to the church in Rome, Paul declares, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This message of Christ, this good news, the writer of the book of Hebrews calls, living and active. Luther also is often quoted as putting it this way. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Through this living and active word, then the Holy Spirit works to forgive sins in Jesus' name and to create faith in the heart where there was no faith to begin with. So, for example, as we follow the apostles through the book of Acts, we get to the part where where Paul preaches to a well-to-do woman named Lydia. Acts 16, 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Through the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit converts Lydia to the Christian faith, and she becomes part of Paul's key support team for his missionary travels. 
Lydia did not have the same privilege that Thomas had. She did not behold the resurrected Christ with her own eyes, yet she still believed and was blessed, just as Jesus predicted. So it begins with the next generation of believers. These believers hear rather than see. And Jesus assures us, my sheep hear my voice. But what about those skeptics like Thomas who feel they need to see before they can believe? Call them the hard of hearing holdouts, if you will. Or maybe they're from Missouri, the show me state. What are some of the pieces of evidence that they could be shown to address their concerns? Well, nowadays it's quite common, for instance, to hear objections like, oh, the Bible is written so long ago and translated so many times that we have no idea, no certainty of the things contained in it. Neither can we be sure there ever was an historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, at all, at all, at all that is, let alone that he claimed to be God. Well, in response to such questions, much ink has been spilt over the centuries. One approach to such skepticism is to answer it with matching skepticism. That's to say, many a skeptic over the years has initially set out to disprove the Christian truth claims, especially the linchpin of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, only to end up embracing the Christian faith that they sought to refute. They, that, this is at least in part because of all the overwhelming historical evidence they discovered in Christianity's favor. Some of these endeavors have been documented step by step by such luminaries as C.S. Lewis and the founder of Harvard Law School, who himself was a former skeptic, Simon Greenlee. And then there's the one I especially like to recommend today, Lee Strobel and his Case for Christ, the story of how an investigative journalist from the Chicago Tribune endeavored to rescue his wife from the cult of Christianity, only to become an active and prolific defender of the Christian faith himself in the end. These conversion stories are a little reminiscent of the conversion of that first century persecutor of the early church, one Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. St. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. You can read about Paul's conversion story from persecutor to preacher in the book of Acts and in his letter to the Galatians. It would seem that when it comes to choosing his ambassadors, God has a certain sense of humor and irony. By the way, Lee Strobel's story was also made into a very fine film by the same name, The Case for Christ, highly recommended. All the common objections by skeptics are dealt with systematically and roundly refuted by the evidence uncovered, including those objections mentioned earlier, to which I will now just briefly respond. Concerning the reliability of the record contained in the Bible, we are not in the unenviable position of being the last person in a circle playing the telephone game. Quite to the contrary, we have thousands of manuscripts or pieces of New Testament manuscripts written in the original Greek language so that we don't have to rely on any translations to get back to the original language. 
we can and we do go back to the available manuscripts in the original Greek, so this objection is rather misguided. Secondly, whether there is any proof that Jesus of Nazareth historically existed, here we have the best evidence of all, right there in front of you in your pew rack, the Bible. But if anyone feels that they need to venture outside of the well-preserved, detailed scriptural accounts themselves, we also have plenty of secular records from both Roman and Jewish historians, non-Christians, who mention Jesus and the movement he inspired. The Jewish Talmud, for instance, has a number of clear references to Jesus, many of which we as Christians would find offensive. For example, in one place they refer to Jesus as a sorcerer, not unlike those accusations we find the chief priests saying about Jesus in our gospel accounts. But it's kind of hard to be a sorcerer or an evil man, uh, as he is called elsewhere in the Talmud, if you don't exist at all. So those Talmudic writings then, despite their attempt to defame Jesus' character, they actually become a valuable testimony against this unfounded claim that Jesus of Nazareth never existed. That's simply untenable. One other valuable resource I'll mention is that of our own Dr. Paul Meyer, well-known Harvard-trained history professor and former vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Among his many published books and works is a DVD documentary entitled Jesus, Lord, or Legend, published in 2003. Get that for your personal edification or give it away to any friend or acquaintance who's wondering about the historical evidence for the Bible. It's quite solid indeed. While all these are certainly sound resources for honest seekers to be sure, we, notwithstanding these resources, must never forget our Lord's words. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6, 44. In the end, it's not we who can argue eternal life into an unbelieving heart. It's not even a wondrous sign in and of itself that has that power, as Father Abraham tries to explain to the rich man in hell who is begging for a messenger to rise from the dead and go warn his brothers of this place of torment, says Abraham, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that is, if they reject the word of God, Abraham continues, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, Luke 16. Now in the end, it's only God's appointed word that must penetrate the hardened heart and pierce the darkness of those lost in doubt and despair. Therefore, out of sympathy for all those whom the devil has taken captive, let us pray for them. Let us first regularly hear the word of God for ourselves and then let us freely share that word, the good news of Christ's death for sinners and the sure hope we have in his bodily resurrection from the dead unto eternal life. Scatter that word. Then pray that it sprouts faith and bears the good fruit of that Thomistic confession, my Lord Jesus and my God. All thanks be to God who mercifully comes to us even when we're 
in lockdown mode. And thanks be to him alone, whose illuminating word penetrates all our doubts and darkness. Amen. And then may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.